All right, uh, I'm going to have Bobby pull up a slide real quick. We are working on our communications, and so we are giving you permission at this moment to pull out your phone. You don't hear that often in church, but at this moment, you can pull out your phone. Uh, We are working on our communications, and, and so if you're wanting to receive a monthly newsletter and you don't get it, Email me so that you can. Or if you're wanting other notifications, we're working on uh, figuring out how to send out mass texting uh, so that you can receive updates and notifications when we have something come up, like last week with the baptism, with the change of location due to weather. We want to be able to get that information out to you as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, So we're working on that. Feel free to email me your information, and we'll get that taken care of. Uh, With that, I would like to read today's scripture, and it is from Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. This is the New Living Translation. It reads, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what, it, what really matters. So that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. The righteous character produced in your life by Christ Jesus. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Gary. There's a proverb in the English language coined by British writer Samuel Johnson in the 1700s. And paraphrasing it, he said, There is nothing like a hanging to concentrate the mind. When a person is in trouble, when his or her time is short, it becomes infinitely more easy to focus on what is important. All that doesn't matter, anything that's trivial or insignificant just seems to fade away. But you don't have to threaten someone's life to get their attention. It can be done by depriving them of their freedom. Incarceration works pretty well, too. Force a person to be still, something that's very hard for most of us. Force a person to concentrate on what really matters. Make them sit still. (laughs) Bo's going to have a hard time with this. And something happens within us. At least it did for Martin Luther King Jr., John Bunyan, Henry David Thoreau, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and Piper Kerman. In April of 1963, Martin Luther King was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama for leading marches and boycotts there. Birmingham's white clergy wrote him a letter, and they put it in the paper, and it was called A Call to Unity, condemning King for his methods. He responded with a letter from Birmingham jail which is a masterpiece in summarizing his philosophy and his methodology. And some of his most enduring quotations come from that letter. He said in that letter, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Was not Jesus an extremist, an extremist for love? The question is not whether or not we will be extremists, but what kind of extremist will we be? Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. 
Freedom is never voluntarily given. It must be demanded. In 1660, English preacher John Bunyan was arrested for holding religious meetings in his home outside the official Anglican church. Refusing to promise that he wouldn't do that again if they would let him out, they held him in prison for 12 years. And while he was there, his mind focused, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, a sprawling epic, the first novel in the English language, and it is a novel for sure. But of course, when you have 12 years, it's pretty easy to write. 125,000 words in the unabridged edition. It's about a man named Christian who makes his way from the fallen city that he's in to the celestial city somewhere over the River Jordan. Henry David Thoreau had been quietly living on Walden Pond when he went into town one day only to be arrested by the local authorities because he hadn't paid his back taxes. Hate it when that happens. He said, I'm not going to pay those taxes because I believe it's funding the Mexican War, Mexican-American War, so I'm not going to pay it. They threw him in jail. And while he was in jail, he penned Civil Disobedience, a masterpiece in American literature. Gandhi was sentenced to six years in India for writing seditious articles, and he used the time to write his autobiography, Experiments with the Truth. Nelson Mandela was jailed in South Africa for 27 years and wrote Conversations with Myself, the tale of his life and how he came to forgive the people who had put him in prison. And what great works of prison literature would be complete without Piper Kerman's masterpiece, Orange is the New Black. You may be watching that on Netflix It began as a best-selling book. Poor Piper was thrown in prison for a year for money laundering and drug trafficking. While she was there, she thought she might as well as use the time wisely. And the rest, as they say, is history. If a hanging concentrates the mind, then a prison cell seems to motivate the pen. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Working with the timeline of his life, from his letters and from the book of Acts, we discover that Paul spent somewhere between five to six years in jail. Philippi, Jerusalem, Caesarea, Rome. But he used his time wisely. Of the 13 letters that bear his name, five were written in prison. We have what's traditionally known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He wrote them all in his first Roman imprisonment sometime around 60-62 A.D. And then one more letter, the fifth, 2 Timothy, he wrote about five years later his last words from prison again, but a different setting, a very difficult time, his last Roman imprisonment. And back to something John Bunyan said, writer of that Pilgrim's Progress, he reportedly said when he was arrested, I have been away from my writing for too long. Maybe this is not so much a prison as a place from which I can reach the world. And that is exactly what Paul did. And that provides us with some necessary background for this study in Philippians that we began last week. Paul writes his most joyous, most positive, uplifting letter while he is in jail. And he writes it to a group of Christians he first met while he was in jail. This is from Acts 16, the background to this great book. We reached Philippi, the first city that heard the gospel in Europe, by the way. We reached Philippi, a major city of that district in a Roman colony. And they stayed there, and we stayed there several days. 
But watch what happens. It doesn't take long. They grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. The city officials ordered them stripped, and they were severely beaten. Then they were thrown into prison. That's an inauspicious beginning, to say the very least. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open. The chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up and assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. Because if he let the prisoners under his care escape, the sentence for that was his own execution, and he was going to die by his own hand instead of being tortured by the authorities. And Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he asked that great question of the New Testament, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. The next morning, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologized. Sorry we beat the hell out of you about that. And they begged them to leave the city. Paul and Silas left the prison, met with the believers, and encouraged them one more time, and then they left town. Now, make a note of this. If you are going to start a new church, a new movement, a new business, a nonprofit, a political campaign, a charter school, this is not how you do it. Go to a new town, a place where you don't know a soul, Round up a few early adopters, these radicals out on the fringe, start a riot, get arrested, get beat up, get incarcerated, and then wait for some natural disaster that seems to destroy the entire town, and then leave town as quickly as possible. I don't think that's a strategy from the Encyclopedia of Best Practices, but that's exactly how Paul begins the church at Philippi. It's all wrong, of course, but they had no problem receiving a letter from Paul just because it was stamped from the federal penitentiary, because he had been thrown into their county lockup already. They knew who he was. And out of this, I remind you, this joyous letter comes out of Paul's sufferings and his imprisonments. And what is the first thing that he says to them when he writes, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Not every time I think of you, I think of those guys that beat me with sticks out in the city square and threw me in jail. Every time I think of you, I think of how long it took for those stripes to heal. No, every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. I'm thankful for you. I'm praying for you. You have a special place in my heart. God knows how much I love you. Keep up the good work. And if you want to get your mind right, and that's what this study of Philippians is all about, if you desire the attitude and the outlook of Jesus, here is a good place to start. Start with gratitude. Start with thanksgiving. 
Gratitude that you've been given a life to live. Gratitude for the people around you, for those who have helped you, for the grace that has miraculously appeared in your life and shined down on you. As Meister Eckhart would say, if the only prayer you ever pray in your entire lifetime is thank you, that prayer would be enough. Years ago, I read Max Licato's fantastic book, In the Eye of the Storm. And in it, he tells the story of Eddie Rickenbacker. Now, if you don't know who Eddie Rickenbacker is, go back to school and study American history. A true American hero. A fighter ace from World War I. A Congressional Medal of Honor winner. He started Eastern Airlines. He owned uh, the Indianapolis 500 for decades. I mean, this guy is, is a character. And when World War II broke out, he was too old to go fight, too old to, to re-enlist, and so he went on a sort of a promotion tour for the Air Force and the U.S. Army. He would just travel the world and try to talk to the, you know, Bob Hope before there was a Bob Hope. He would encourage the troops, and he would, he would try to give them a little fortitude and tell his own story, and he would go to places and share secret messages with commanders in the field from authorities in the United States. Well, in the 1940s during the war, a plane that he was in crashed into the South Pacific, and he and his crew found themselves adrift at sea in a nine-foot little raft with ten-foot sharks. But that wasn't the real danger. Well, it, what, isn't that great? There's ten-foot sharks in the water, but good news, that's not the worst problem you have. The worst problem was starvation. They had no rations. They had ditched so quickly they didn't have anything. And they're starving in this raft in the South Pacific. And they're sitting there one day in the heat, and they have a little prayer service. We would too, wouldn't you? Somebody had a little, a little Bible in their, in their pocket of their jumpsuit. They read a little bit from the Bible, and they were praying for a miracle, and they all sort of fell asleep in the hot sun. And Rickenbacker felt something on his head. And he instinctively knew what it was, that it was a seagull, hundreds and hundreds of miles from land. And he caught it. And they ate it. And they took the entrails and they used it for fish bait. 24 days later, they were retrieved from the South Pacific. That one little coincidence, that one miracle, saved them all. Years later, when Rickenbacker retired to Coconut Grove, Florida, south of Miami, every day he would walk the beach and every Friday night he would go to the pier with a bucket of shrimp. And he would walk to the end of the pier with that bucket of shrimp, and thousands of gulls would come around him. And he'd reach in, and he'd get a shrimp, and he'd throw it in the air, and with every one of them, he would say, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And when the bucket was empty, he'd go back home, only to repeat that every Friday. Why did he do that? He could never bring back the gull that he killed. No. But he did it as an act of gratitude, as an act of thanksgiving for the life that he continued to enjoy, a life that would have ended without that happenstance of that little bird landing on his head in the South Pacific. Begin right there. Be grateful. Be thankful. The University of California conducted a study where they had three groups of people and these three groups were asked to write down something for an entire year. Group number one wrote down every day 
something they were thankful for. Group two just wrote about events in general, neither positive nor negative. Group three wrote about everything that bothered them and made them angry, sort of like social media today. At the end of a year, the group that had written something they were thankful about every day were healthier, happier, had gone to the doctor half as much, felt better about the world, and felt better about their own futures than both the other groups. Scientifically proven what we know in our hearts to be true, gratitude is good for you. And if you want to start somewhere about how do I get my head right and think like Jesus and be like Jesus, let's start right there. Be grateful that you have what you have and be grateful for the life that you have been given. I know your life hasn't gone exactly the way you planned it. Well, get in line. You think Paul said, you know, I... I saw myself as a Jewish scholar one day in Jerusalem, but here I am in this prison writing these letters. And still, the first thing that comes from his pen, I thank my God every time that I think of you. Start right there, and God takes care of the rest. Well, what is the rest? Next slide, Bobby. I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, listen, I don't know exactly what God is up to in your life. I can't tell you. I don't know that about myself or the people closest to me. I can't say specifically what God is going to do in your life, but I do know generally what God is up to, what God's hope, God's dream, if we could use that word, God's plan is for you. It is to make you into the image of Christ. The right mind, this peaceful, joyful way of thinking, this life of contentment, it will not be accomplished by changing what is going on around you. It's a work of the interior. And that's why so many of us can't be happy. Because we think that our happiness is based on our surroundings. If only. What a phrase. If only I had a better job. Well, it would be okay for a while until you learn the things about the new job that make you just as crazy about the old job, right? Anybody ever change job thinking that's the solution to all my problems and you're more miserable in three months than you were before you left? No? Nobody? If only I were married. Followed by, if only I had never gotten married. (laughs) Right? If only I had kids. If only we had waited to have kids. If only I had more money. Well, that will help. A little bit. Stats say that once you reach, though, about $80,000 in the United States, happiness plateaus at that point. I'm not saying you shouldn't make more than that, but I'm saying that if you're counting on wages to make you happier, you're barking up the wrong tree. It's just just not going to happen. There are thousands upon thousands of people that have moved to our beaches thinking, that's it. 
I'll get there and I'll be happy. And they bring all their bunk and discontentment with them. And they're as miserable here as they were in Davidson County or Buckhead or Birmingham or wherever it is the hell they came from. And if you're a tourist here today, we're so glad you're here. Please spend, <laughs> please spend your money in our restaurants, our gasoline stations, every snappy turtle you can find. I've said hell twice today, haven't I? <laughs> I'm a little tired today. When I get tired, nothing you never know what's going to happen. You never know. Bo, Bo really set at the stage for me today. I love that. Whatever, man, let it be. Let your freak flag fly. Contentment and peace, if it's anything at all, is an internal work. It's something, oh, it's something about the inner person, not our outer circumstances. You know this, don't you? But we forget it. Thinking like Jesus, being like Jesus, being shaped into the image of Christ is something that starts right here, not something that starts all around us. This is the work that God will complete in us. Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk whose legacy continues to bear fruit to this day, after his, 50 years after his death, he would say this, how does an apple ripen? An apple cannot ripen in one day, I love this, by tightening all its muscles and squinting its eyes and tightening its jaw in order to find itself the next morning miraculously large, red, ripe, and juicy. It has to sit in the sun. Likewise, we wait on Christ to do the work we cannot do. In gratitude for seeing the sun and feeling its warmth, we trust God to make us what God will make us to be. Final story. From the 1992 Summer Olympics held in Barcelona, Spain. This is Derek Redman. Derek Redman was a member of the British Olympic team running in the 400. He was a favorite to win the gold medal that day. And halfway through the race, his right hamstring tore in two. And down on the track, he collapsed. All was lost. Tears running down his face, dripping off his chin. But he got up, and he started hobbling down the track toward the finish line. And the crowd lost their collective mind. They forgot all about the other runners, and they focused on him and his struggle. He was going to finish. And it was then that a second man appeared on the track. This man, not an athlete, heavier, middle-aged. He's wearing a Just Do It shirt and a Nike shirt, uh, Just Do It hat and a Nike shirt that says, Have you hugged your foot today? I don't know, I don't remember that. He put his arms around Derek Redman, carrying him along at times. They pushed the medical staff away, and together they crossed the finish line. After the race, it was discovered that the second man on the track was Jim Redmond, Derek's father. From 18 rows in the Barcelona stands, he had come. He had gotten past every security guard. He had made his way over a concrete barrier. He had snuck under the security line and got to where his son 
was on the track, and he said, when your kid's in trouble, you don't need permission to get to them. And then he said this, we started this together, and we finished this together. Who won the 400 gold medal in the Barcelona Olympics? I don't know if anybody knows. These two men are literally immortal in Olympic history. They will never be forgotten. Not because they won and things turned out the way that they wanted them to. But because the work was completed. Father and child together. That's what I would say to you today. You want to know what God is up to in your life? I can tell you generally. God is going to finish what He has started with you. And I don't know what it will look like. But it will be glorious and unforgettable when we get there.